Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Fred Reich, who is a partner in Fager Drinkers Benefits and Executive Compensation Practice Group, the Investment Management Group, and the Financial Services ERISA team. His practice focuses on fiduciary issues, prohibited transactions, tax qualification, and retirement income. He works with both private and public sector entities and their plans and fiduciaries. He represents plans, employers, and fiduciaries before the governing agencies like the IRS and the DOL. And much of his practice is focused on consulting with banks, trust companies, insurance companies, and mutual fund companies on 401k investment products and issues related to plan investments and retirement income. And he also represents broker-dealers and registered investment advisors on issues related to fiduciary status and compliance, prohibited transactions, and internal procedures. Fred has written four books and over 350 articles on fiduciary responsibility, prohibited transactions, IRS and DOL audits, and pension plan disputes. He authors a monthly column on 401k fiduciary responsibility for Plan Sponsor Magazine, and he's written a quarterly column on that subject for the Journal of Pension Benefits. And he's also won multiple Lifetime Achievement Awards from various publications. Let's just say that Fred is kind of like a legal rock star in the retirement industry. He's also been a good friend and mentor of mine for 15 years, and I was fortunate to stumble across his writings and ideas when I first started to work with 401k plans, which played a huge role in shaping my knowledge and learnings and continues to this day. He wrote the forward of my latest book, The Fiduciary Formula, and he also helped me create our online ERISA fiduciary training course that's available on the Fiduciary U website. And as a client of his, our firm continues to benefit from his advice and his guidance. On today's episode, Fred and I discuss recent regulation, like Regulation BI, and the proposed DOL fiduciary advice rule that was announced at the end of June, and how these things impact plan sponsors and the industry in general, especially when it comes to rollovers. We talk about the SECURE Act and specifically the guidance around guaranteed income and multiple employer plans and pooled employer plans, also known as MEPS and PEPS. We cover evolving litigation trends, specifically in the areas of cybersecurity and data privacy. And we also discuss recent DOL guidance on ESG and private equity investing for ERISA plans. And be sure to listen to the end where Fred shares his thoughts on how the retirement industry needs to evolve from a focus on simply accumulation to decumulation and how to make that continuum work, as well as his single best piece of advice for making ERISA fiduciaries smarter. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy episode number four of the Fiduciary You podcast with Fred Reich from Fager Drinker. Welcome, Fred Reich, to the Fiduciary You podcast. I'm so excited that you're a guest today. I can't wait for the audience to hear your insights. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this. Oh, Josh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, hopefully together today, we'll, we'll put together some good information for folks and and help everybody out a little bit. 
I hope that's the case. I expect it will be. You know, the Fiduciary You podcast is really kind of the focus is to make ERISA fiduciaries smarter. And, you know, you've actually had a huge impact on my career over the years, you know, 15 plus years ago when I first started to work with 401k plans, I came across you and your writings and, you know, it really kind of helped shape my understanding of what it meant to be an ERISA fiduciary. You were kind enough to write the forward to my latest book, The Fiduciary Forward, so I appreciate, or The Fiduciary Formula, so I appreciate that as well. I I would kind of describe you as like the EF Hutton of the retirement industry. When I was a little kid growing up in the 1980s, EF Hutton was this brokerage firm. You you probably remember it. And they had these commercials. It would say when, when EF Hutton talks, people listen. And so I think you're kind of that, that voice within the industry. That's very nice. And yeah, I do remember. I'm, I'm old enough to remember all that, Josh. So that's good. Yeah. And and you've outlasted EF Hutton because they're uh, they're no longer around. So good job from that perspective. So I, I want to talk about a number of different topics. And and today I think we'll have a wide ranging discussion. I think there's some regulatory things to discuss. There's some legislative things to discuss. Uh, I'd love to dive into maybe some litigation trends that that we're seeing and get your your perspective. And then you know the DOL has been pretty active recently as well, providing guidance around things like ESG investing and private equity. And so I think we'll cover all of those different things. But where I'd like to start is really some regulatory updates that that or some new regulations that that recently went into effect, you know, a couple of years ago with the fiduciary rule that had been put forth by the DOL. And, you know, the industry had spent a tremendous amount of time and money kind of working towards that that fiduciary rule, which ultimately got vacated a couple of years ago on, I think, on appeal. We have this regulation best interest or what's called Reg BI. It went into effect June 30th, and really it was aimed at requiring brokers and broker dealers to act in clients' best interest when making investment recommendations. And as I read it, and, and again, we're at Greenspring, a registered investment advisor, so not under the, no, we don't have a broker dealer, but it seemed like Reg BI, while it didn't impose a full fiduciary standard on brokers and broker dealers, it did lift the standards of care to a certain extent. That being said, there was a lot of criticism around the fact that it was too lenient of a rule and actually kind of watered down some of the fiduciary protections, especially for ERISA plans. What are your thoughts? Can you talk a little bit about Reg BI, what it means, why it's important, any challenges or shortcomings of the regulation, and what should specifically plan sponsors and plan fiduciaries be aware of as it relates to Reg BI? Josh, Reg BI is a mixed bag. There's some good and, and some not so good. If there's any bad, it's that it makes people, people may think that uh, broker-dealers are subject to a quasi-fiduciary standard now, which is partially true, but you can't totally rely on that. Okay. With that general introduction, yes, first it is based on fiduciary standards. For example, the standard of care is that that the recommendations by broker-dealers have to be developed with care, skill, and diligence, where if you look at the at the fiduciary rule, it says care, skill, diligence, and prudence. The SEC dropped that word prudence, but said that they didn't mean to change the standard by dropping it. So, it, it's actually very close if you look at the process that you have to go through in making a, an investment recommendation. Also, so that's higher. That's a higher standard. That's better. Also, there's a requirement that uh, broker-dealers mitigate the compensation of their advisors, meaning that, that, that broker-dealers tampen the incentive effect of higher compensation so that advisors are focused on what's best for the customer and 
and not what's best for the advisor. So that, that's good too. I mean, I, I think both of those are, are going to be very effective. So what's not so good? Well, it doesn't create a private right of action. So if an investor feels like their broker dealer advisor didn't make a recommendation in their best interest, there's no way to file a lawsuit on that and recover your losses. So it, it can only be enforced by FINRA, the self-regulatory organization for broker dealers, and by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that was something different. To, and, and that was just to be clear, that was one of the things that the kind of prior DOL fiduciary rule allowed was this this private right of action, correct? That's exactly right. And that's it reduces some of the tension in the system. But that's not to say that there isn't any tension because the regulators can still come in and enforce the rules. It's just there are only so many regulators and there are millions of transactions. So it's a it's weaker than the best interest contract exemption, which is the name of the old DOL rule that applied to this. But it is it is it is nonetheless higher than what the rules were previously. I think if you talk to consumer advocates, they'll say that the weakest part of, of the DOL guidance, Reg BI, I mean of the SEC guidance, Reg BI, is that it relies heavily on disclosure. And there's a lot of there are a lot of studies, there's a lot of literature that says that disclosures aren't particularly effective. If you give somebody say go to my website at this page and there's like 20 pages of fine print of disclosures, the general thinking is that most people aren't going to go read all that and therefore it won't prove to be very effective at all. So there, there's some good and some bad and, and, and how you see it depends on where you stand. It, it does say though that if a, for example, if an advisor at a broker dealer recommends to a participant that they, that they take a rollover, that that recommendation has to be in the best interest of the participant because it's a big worry that the SEC has and for that matter, the DOL has that says this that when a participant, let's say retires, takes their money out of the plan or, or is considering taking their money out of the plan, that will be the largest single financial transaction that that participant has ever entered into in their entire life or will ever enter into. And that a lot of participants in plans who can have fairly large account balances, say accumulated over 20 or 30 years, don't have the financial sophistication to really understand all of the consequences of leaving a fiduciary-run, well-priced, high-quality plan and rolling into a retail IRA with much higher expenses and conflicts of interest. So it's, it's, that's an area of particular focus now among the regulators, both the SEC and the DOL. So that's another, that, that, that's a way in which, in which the rules are converging, as well as what I mentioned earlier about care, skill, diligence, and prudence being the standard of care under right under under ERISA prudence the word prudence under ERISA drops the word prudence and it's reg BI right right and so what is that just just on the surface may not seem like hey dropping one one word makes that that much of a difference does it make a difference and and what what what's the difference do you think if so between the DOL approach and the SEC approach? Like how important is that word prudence? What does that mean in kind of real world terms? You know, I, the SEC and the preamble to the rule, the so-called adopting release of Red BI, says it doesn't make a difference. They don't intend for it to make a difference. But it, it, it it's possible that it would. And I, my personal view is that most of these cases are pretty clear cut. And you, you know, if you, if you violated the rule, 
who aren't careful, diligent, and skillful. And the word prudence won't matter. If it ever does matter, it'll be in a very close call case. I mean, it's something that could tilt either way. So for 95, 98% of the cases, I think it's going to end up being pretty much the same thing. And what it means is that the regulators will look at the process. And how did the advisor go about gathering information about the customer, analyzing that information in light of the customer's needs and circumstances, and make a recommendation? Another big change that is going to be, uh, I think, is getting a little bit of play right now, but is going to end up being a big deal, is that the SEC says in Reg BI that the advisor, that that cost of the investment has to be a consideration in the development of every investment recommendation by any broker dealer from now on. So it's going to make it harder to justify higher cost products, and particularly those where the cost may be hidden and the, and the, and the investor can't really see it. And often that cost is attributable to compensation for the advisor and the broker dealer or to compensation for whoever is managing the investments that may end up being shared as revenue sharing. So that's a big deal, in my opinion. So, it, you know, Josh, in a nutshell, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I think it's a big step forward. I don't think it's the same as a fiduciary rule and, and that, that more generally prohibits conflicts of interest. Pure conflicts of interest can be handled by disclosure. So I would say if I were an investor and I wanted to, and so that, and, and the question was, what do I still need to be really aware of? I would say conflicts of interest, and particularly conflicts of interest involving compensation to the broker-dealer, the advisor, or the investment manager. That would be that would be the area that I think is the least well managed by the new rule. Right, which is which you can probably find on page seventy-seven of the disclosure that you're going to get if you uh, if you make it that far in the reading. That seems to be the big challenge in the real world, right? Is is you know it's important to know to write, ask the right questions, but what's even more important once you ask the right questions is being able to interpret that. And and you know it's it's interesting just in terms of like if I think about Reg BI and and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know it's really about you've ha- you've had this kind of different standard of content of of conduct between brokers and broker dealers, and then registered investment advisors who are held to a, you know, a full fiduciary standard. And it seems as though Reg BI is the effort to try to harmonize and, and raise up at least the standards of care for the broker and broker dealer community to get closer, if you will, to, I think, the standards or, or the, the regulations that are imposed upon registered investment advisors. It's it's not fully there. It's a step in the right direction, but it's not, it's, it's not fully there. And, and, you know, one of the biggest challenges I think we've seen in the industry is that consumers, whether that's a plan sponsor, whether that's an individual investor, have a really hard time in knowing what the difference, you know, really understanding what it means to be a fiduciary or not. And it sounds like this is a step in the right direction and certainly better than what was in place. But there's still the opportunity for confusion, whether it be disclosure disclosure-based or just not kind of understanding the the interplay between the two types of of professionals, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and a significant difference also, Josh, as you know very well, is that in the typical case, a broker-dealer, to, to be a broker-dealer, 
is just giving transaction-based advice. In other words, I recommend you buy this or I recommend you sell that. For an investment advisor, the, the fiduciary relationship it, it, uh, covers the whole arrangement, the whole relationship between the parties, not just that particular transaction. Right. And a good example of that is monitoring. Broker-dealers can't do continuous monitoring of an investor's account. That That is reserved to investment advisors. That's definitional. That is what an investment advisor is. And where investment advisors obviously can actively manage accounts, they can continuously monitor them, and the fiduciary relationship covers the whole relationship. So if, if I had to pick a handful of differentiating factors, it would be those active management, continuous monitoring, a fiduciary relationship of, of uh, the whole relationship is fiduciary. Any advice given, any recommendations is fiduciary. It, it's, it's, it's getting closer together, but, but fundamentally understanding one is transactional based, the other is relationship based is what you need to know just to understand the difference between poker dealers and investment advisors. Right. So that, I think that brings a, another good question is that, you know, not to be left out. So you had Reg BI is from the SEC, not to be left out. In late June, the DOL announced a proposed new regulation to govern investment advice and retirement accounts that was really meant to replace that that vacated fiduciary rule. Can you talk a little bit about kind of this proposed rule and how do you think that impacts Reg BI, if it does at all? And, and really with all of these things, how do these things impact plan sponsors? What should they be aware of? What, what in order to be what I would call knowledgeable retirement consumers, like how do they need to think about these things? Well, to start off with the DOL proposal, basically what it says is that advisor, that, that a broker dealer who receives variable compensation, and what I mean by variable compensation is if I recommend this to you, I get so much upfront and so much per year. But if I recommend this other investment to you, I get more in my front end commission and more in, in trailing payments every year. That's and that's the that's the con and, and that's the conflict right there, right? That's the right exactly. Because I can the issue. feather my own nest. Yeah. I can feather my own nest and make more money by recommending the more expensive product. That's always been prohibited. I mean by ERISA uh, and by the internal revenue code, just prohibited. And the DOL, or DOL has issued a proposal that says, hey, we're going to allow that going forward if you follow a handful of, of uh, requirements. And one of the requirements is that effectively they follow the, the, the ERISA's duty of loyalty and ERISA's duty of care, which people have taken to calling the best interest standard. But this is truly ERISA's. It has the word prudence in there, if that does make a difference, at least in the wording if, if you want to get conflicted compensation as a broker-dealer by making recommendations to plans, participants, or IRO owners, you have to make, you have to adhere to the best interest standard of care. You can receive no more than reasonable compensation, and you can't mislead the investor about the investments. There's more to it than that, but that's the general scenario. The, the, this is very controversial. Uh, <laughs> how does that work? In, how does that work in practice? I mean, that that is just that 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 seems like strange bedfellows there. Well, you know, it's interesting. It, 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 the difference here is advice to plans and participants uh, when it's subject to a, is already subject to a fiduciary standard. If you're a fiduciary, right. and there is a private right of action there. 
So this doesn't take that private right of action away. I mean, and for those of you who don't talk lawyer talk, private right of action means you can sue, where otherwise just the agencies, the government agencies could enforce it, but, but individuals couldn't. So, but with, with regard to conflicted advice to IRAs, there is no private right of action, although there's a concern among in the broker-dealer community that, that that standard that the government could enforce will be adopted by courts and by arbitration panels. So maybe it's moving closer to a private right of action for IRAs. Forget all that lawyerly stuff. The DOL proposal also relies on disclosure, which, like I said, a lot of people, probably most people, don't think is particularly effective. But it does impose a higher standard of care. The best interest standard of care plus the Reg BI standard of care plus the word cruise. It has some really interesting things in there. One is that every year the the firm, let's call it a broker dealer, has to do a retrospective review of how well they've complied with the rule. And if they haven't complied with those requirements, they have to improve their their, their conduct. And that that review has to be reduced to a written report, and the CEO of the company has to sign off on it. Well, needless to say, there's a lot of negative comments about that because, <laughs> I mean, but, it, but if you think about it, it really introduces some tension into the system, which whether it's the CEO or the CC, the chief compliance officer or whatever, having that kind of a requirement means that there really has to be a tough review yeah. every year because high level, you know, uh, high level officers are going to be putting their name on it one way or another. If, if it goes final the way it's written right now. Yeah. That's one. And then the other thing, just to follow up on what I mentioned earlier, it, it takes a really strong stand on rollover recommendations and in two ways. One way it says, if you make a rollover recommendation and if this rule becomes final, because remember, it's just a proposal now, if it becomes final, there has to be written documentation of why the recommendation is in the best interest of the participant. Well, that's a cut above any other recommendation. There's generally not a requirement in the law that there be a written documentation of why a fiduciary rule is satisfied. Now, a lot of people do that because it's a, it's a way to show compliance, but, but it's not generally required. Here it would be. So they're, they're elevating rollover recommendations to a higher level than, than other recommendations. The second thing is that historically, the Department of Labor has said that rollover recommendations, if they're not made by a fiduciary, you don't have to follow these fiduciary rules, obviously. But if they are made by a fiduciary, then you do. But they've had a relatively weak definition of fiduciary. What the DOL has said gratuitously in the, in the preamble to the proposal is we think that if an advisor has a continuous relationship, and this isn't an exemption, there are no conditions. This is a DOL saying we think this today. Say if, if an advisor has a continuous relationship with a participant and recommends a rollover, then that advisor satisfies the requirement that they give that they be giving advice on a regular basis, which is one of the conditions to be a fiduciary, and which is the main one that would apply here. So, in other words, it's going to make people make it much much easier to show that an advisor is a fiduciary when they make a rollover recommendation. For example. If an advisor, the DOL says, if an advisor makes a rollover recommendation and the recommendation is to roll over to an IRA with an advisor and the advisor, it's anticipated that the advisor will be giving ongoing 
advice, uh, functionally, not, not an agreement. There's no requirement for an agreement. It can just be an understanding. Ongoing advice about that IRA, then that's continuous advice, and that satisfies the regular basis requirement. But what advisor makes a rollover recommendation that isn't to rollover with the advisor? Uh, I mean, who says, hey, rollover with somebody else? That right. wouldn't be very common. And and so that's going to mean a lot of people, if the DOL sticks to its guns on that one, it means a lot of people that haven't thought that they were fiduciaries in the past will be fiduciaries for rollover recommendations. And and just to go back to what I said earlier, Josh, it, this shows how important the government thinks that rollover recommendations are. We now have roughly 10,000 people a day reaching age 65, 10,000 people a day retiring, 10,000 people a day filing for Social Security benefits. We have over $500 billion a year rolling out of retirement plans. Yeah, it's a big deal. And uh, that's an area that's going to be increasingly scrutinized by by all of the government regulators, not just the Department of Labor. Well, and I would say, too, the, the higher level of ERISA kind of standards, if you will, has have often, I think, protected individual investors in a way that potentially the kind of more brokerage retail, once you get out of an ERISA plan, especially, you know, call it financial professionals that haven't been held to a fiduciary standard, it creates a lot more of kind of a Wild West environment, if you will, at least, you know, the kind of ERISA being fenced around those assets created, I think, you know, standards of conduct protections, if you will. So it, it definitely seems from a consumer perspective, this is a step in the right direction. Obviously, there's a lot of competing priorities. It, it, it would be better if there was just one fiduciary standard that was that was kind of applied across the board. But obviously, we're not there yet. Let's talk a little bit about the kind of legislative environment. And, you know, the SECURE Act, which was passed at the end of 2019, and then we have, obviously, the CARES Act, which was related, you know, in, in response more to, to, to COVID-19. I'd love to talk a little bit about the CARES Act, though, because we're starting to, you know, see things having gone into go into effect. I would say probably the, the two biggest components, at least in my opinion, that came out of that act was, number one, some of the provisions on retirement income. And then I think, secondly, guidance around multiple employer plans and pooled employer plans, what are called MEPs and PEPs. So let's take a couple of minutes and maybe talk about those things. Why don't we start with guaranteed income? Can you provide some insights into these provisions in the SECURE Act? And what did this guidance provide? Well, the, uh, just as background, Josh, I, you know, a second ago, I said 10,000 people a day are retiring and over 500 billion a year is being rolled out of plans. Viewed slightly differently, taking those same numbers, those same people are doing it differently. Once that money gets rolled out into an IRA, or let's say it's in a plan, it stays in the plan. That then has to last for 20 or 30 years or more in retirement. My mom died a year and a half ago. She was 101 years old. That was If she had retired at 65, that would have been 36 years. Uh, that was probably that almost uh, that, that was probably almost as much or more time than she actually was in the workforce. She was retired. Yeah, it's about the same. Exactly. About the same. Uh, although she was from another era. I mean, she started working like at sixteen. So, but but generally, yes, that's that's right. The, what I'm trying to say is that we're now, you know, up till now, 401k plans have been judged to a large degree by what are their features? Uh, do they have great investments? Do they have low cost? Do they have a good website? You know, just you know, do they make people happy? Then we sort of evolved to, well, are, are people accumulating enough benefits, which is where we are now, 
And then the next iteration is going to be, how do we make all that money last for, in my mom's case, 36 years, but certainly for most people, 20 years or more, because 20 years is roughly the average of how long people live after age 65. And then when you take into account that people in 401k plans are white collar, college educated, not entirely, but largely, it's longer than 20 years. So how do we make that work? So along comes the SECURE Act. And, and it did two big things. So, number one, about a year and a half from now, 401k plans are going to have to project retirement income for every participant at least once a year. Now, plan sponsors don't need to worry about that because uh, their record keepers will take care of it for them. But they, but it is going to happen. And so every year, participants are going to get a projection that you know, when you're 65 or 67 your account balance will produce so much income for you in retirement. So all of a sudden, it's being that I think will cause a shift of viewing an account balance as wealth and shift it over to viewing an account balance at least equally uh, as as income in retirement. Big change. Which which, which uh, behaviorally which which behaviorally speaking, I think you know it's interesting when we think about account balances. That's not how people financially live their lives, right? Everything is usually like, what am I spending per month? What is my mortgage cost or my rent? How much is my car payment? How much is, you know, my utility bill or my cable bill? You don't think about those things in terms of like the total kind of value or balance of what those things look like, right? So this idea of lifetime income, it seems like is really to kind of, to, to help people you know, behaviorally and, and probably psychologically kind of understand what that money represents in terms of living their lives on a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year basis. Yeah. And I think if we project out, Josh, it is monthly. It's absolutely monthly. Your cell phone bill comes monthly, your rent's monthly, your mortgage is monthly, everything is monthly. So the way what will happen is the participants will get this number. You will have uh, $1,500 a month of retirement. Well, Next question is, what does that mean? Is that enough? Well, I, I think that the industry, the, the government won't require, but I think the industry will come along and say, well, you know, a common benchmark is a 70 or 80% income replacement ratio in retirement based on what you made while you were working, including Social Security as a part of that. And so that I think there will be what's called gap analysis provided by the private sector where you know, there's a benchmark given, and then you see if somebody's, if there's a gap between what the benchmark for a reasonable retirement is and what they are actually projected to have. So I think there'll be tools to help participants. But then you get to the third step. So first is requiring the projections. Second is gap analysis. Third is, so how do I actually do that? How do I get that income so much per month? And and as a part of this, there, there are really two basic solutions to that. One is an insurance type solution and the other is which is guaranteed and the other is security solution investments which is not guaranteed but which may provide a higher return but a more variable return a return that bounces all around after my mom after my dad passed away i I went to my mom and said well mom do you feel financially secure even though dad's gone she said no i said well what about all the mutual funds and the stocks and the bonds and everything he left for you she said those don't count i said what do you mean they don't count she said, oh, they go up and down every day. You have no idea what they're worth. So, it, it, you know, some people, many people perhaps, will want more financial security. So the Secure Act said, hey, we're going to make it really easy to put have guaranteed income 
in retirement plans. Uh, it could be annuities. It could be there's a thing called a guaranteed minimum withdrawal benefit, which is not a traditional annuity, but, but, but which guarantees a certain level of income. But insured products, in effect, it says you can buy insured products with confidence for your plan. And here's a fiduciary safe harbor to let you do it. And it's a fiduciary safe harbor that's easy to comply with. So bottom line, it's just, it will, there will be a lot of offerings of guaranteed income coming out over the next couple of years. They'd be out, I think some of them are already out, but, but there would be more out right now if it weren't for the pandemic. It's just really tough to rule stuff out right now because with new things, you need to sit down and talk about it. And nobody's sitting down and talking about things right now other than Zoom or WebEx or whatever. And that's not quite the same. It's good, but it's not quite the same. So anyway, that's what the Secure Act did. Project retirement income. That'll be about a year and a half from now. Uh, safe harbor for including insurance products in your plan, guaranteed retirement income insurance products in your plan. Uh, and that's right now. That's already here, but the progress has been slowed down with the pandemic. So those are the, to me, those are big. And then you mentioned pooled employer plans a minute ago, so-called HEPs. I'm doing a lot of work in that area. I, I think they're great. It, it, essentially, it's where financial institution can set up a, a financial company. It could be an investment advisor, a broker-dealer, a trust company, an insurance company, a mutual fund company, a record keeper. But, but some financial entity will set up a plan and say, hey, hey, this is a group of assets. I'll take on the fiduciary responsibility for the plan. And in that case, the law calls me a PPP, a pooled plan provider. Some people are calling that a three P. Not to and be com- not going to be confused with the you know the Paycheck Protection Act. No, no, Act not at all. The, uh, or program, if you will. So that like the government loves these acronyms, but you know essentially the the, the 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 PEP being able pooling and and this idea that's been talked about for a long time. I think, and and there have been MEPs, multiple employer plans, but it, it it's the Secure Act. Really, what it did was it made it easier for a whole host of reasons, but for, like you said, these sponsoring organizations, these PPPs to kind of put together a, call it a, you know, a 401k plan, if you will, that lots of companies potentially could adopt and become, you know, utilizes their own 401k plan instead of having their own kind of custom one just for their company. And there's some, there's some things that you get from there, potentially scale, fiduciary wise, possibly fee wise as well. Yeah, three th- there are three advantages that are going to be touted. Cost savings, if the plan gets big enough, because the main cost savings will come from uh, having institutional share classes of mutual funds, the lowest cost mutual funds, and having collective investment trusts for so-called CITs. So if they get enough money, they'll be able to drive down the investment costs. The administration cost, I think, will be as much or more. That it would have been. But so no big break there in any event. But, but on the investment side, I think they can drive down the cost. They, they take all, over 90, 95% of the fiduciary responsibility. So for employers who say, I'm really fearful of being sued, they'll be able to unload that, largely unload it. And then uh, assuming, assuming, assuming like a 338, ERISA 338, you know, investment manager is appointed to oversee the investments, which I suspect within these PEPs, like that's going to be the the, the primary structure. Absent of yeah. that, my I, understanding I, is that plant sponsors still would have responsibility for selecting investments unless there's a 338 
in place. Exactly. And, and, and the ones that I've worked on that are, that are being put together now all have a 338 because they want to be able to go to market and to say to plan sponsors, we'll be the fiduciary. We'll have the target on our back. You won't have it on yours. So it's possible legally to have one without a 338 and, and one or more may roll out, particularly for if they, if they roll out for very large plans and they want to use their own 338. But, but for smaller plans, they're going to, it's going to be a package deal because they do want to be able to pitch. We're going to take all the fiduciary responsibility off of you. By the way, as, it, as, it, as it relate, as it relates to selecting and monitoring the investments. Oh, and, and administration. The 316 fiduciary responsibility also. So speak about that for a minute, this idea of taking all, what, what will with these, with these perhaps, I guess a couple of questions. One, do you think, do you think these things will go up market or do you think, you know, a lot of the, the target and kind of the argument is that small plans can achieve some of this scale and protection on their own, which I would argue is not necessarily the case, but that's kind of seems the way these, these solutions are being marketed for kind of more the smaller end of the market to leverage economies of scale, if you will. And then what, so number one, what do you think in terms of that? Do you think there'll be success in moving up market with, with these pooled employer solutions? And then I guess the second question would be, what is for these adopting employers? Let's say my company, Greenspring Advisors, we say we don't want to have our own 401k plan just for us anymore for, you know, a variety of reasons we're going to join a PEP and we're going to kind of turn the keys over. Like what, how much can we turn the keys over? What is our responsibility as an employer who chooses that for our company and for our people? Well, the, the first off uh, going upscale, I'm actually working on with, with one PPP to do an upscale PEP pooled employer plan. And it, it's going to look very different than the small plan scenario. These will be negotiated individually with each employer. For example, uh, you know, for one employer, it might be $20 a participant. For another employer, it might be $50 a participant, depending on the number of participants and total assets. They may be able to accommodate company stock, on and on and on. They'll, they'll look very flexible vis-a-vis each individual employer. That's for the bigger plans. For the smaller plans, where I think the need and the or, or not the need, but the, where I think that the sales opportunity are the greatest right now, they'll be more vanilla in the sense that they'll have more of a set lineup, they'll have a set way of doing things, there'll be some design flexibility, but not total design flexibility. So what, what the plan sponsor wants to do on a practical level, or the employer wants to do on a practical level, is, is look at that and see if it's adequate. I, I think for a lot of small plan employers, they may say, you know I I just want a real straightforward plan to give to my employees. So they have a 401k plan, but I I don't have the internal staffing to really manage it myself. I don't want to be that involved. I make widgets, not plans. So I just want to plug and play. This is the ultimate plug and play plan. That's practical. Now, legal, from a fiduciary responsibility, they need to look at the package and make a determination that that it would be prudent for their company to hire that package to do it. Now, so for example, if if let's say you were a PPP, Josh, your firm were, and you know, you know plans, you know how they run, you know what the investments are like, you know what the fees are like. I mean, I could look at you as a PPP and say, 
wow, it's pretty safe to hire Josh's PPP for my, or PPEP for my plan because he, he's confident, he's capable, he's really good, he knows what he's doing, he's got a lot of experience. So that's the kind of analysis. Is it a competent organization? Does it know what it's doing? Are these people with experience in 401k plans? That's the responsibility of the employer. So it's a fiduciary process to evaluate the provider, the more experienced, the more capable, uh, the better brand name, the easier it is to engage in positively in that fiduciary process, even if you don't know exactly everything you're supposed to do. Because what small employer was born knowing everything there is to know about 401k plans? None. So yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be pretty easy because I think the people that are going to bring them out, the firms that will be PPPs are going to be true, capable, competent 401k players. So initially, at least, I don't think there's going to be, I don't think it'd be very tough for a plan sponsor to prudently select one of the providers. And then once they've selected, let's say, and they've made a prudent decision there, just operationally, what is the you know, the employer, the plan sponsor, uh, is it really remitting, you know, is it remitting, you know, payroll contributions and distributing, you know, communications and making sure that their their internal process is just like any other employer or kind of aligning with whatever the provisions within the plan document are? Is that just administratively, they don't have to sit in committee meetings anymore, you know, they don't have to evaluate fees you know, outside of the overall, is it is it prudent to select this PEP, if you will? What's the plan sponsor do moving forward kind of day to day? I think there's two things they have to do. One is that evaluation. And clearly, you know, even if somebody hired like you, Josh, or your firm or a comparable firm on a consulting basis to help them select a PEP and maybe on an ongoing consulting basis to help them review the PEP annually, from a fiduciary perspective, that would be helpful because I, I do have a concern, as I sort of implied a minute ago, that, that that plan sponsors may not know enough to really do it properly. And my concern is particularly on the cost side. Is, are the, is that expense structure appropriate for that plan? But, but that aside, that's legal. On a practical level, the, the big difference here is you know, when it's a single employer plan, the employer is in charge of a lot of this. Uh, now they may give it to a third party, the data to a third party administrator or uh, to the record keeper. But here they, they have a limited set of responsibilities. One is just data, payroll data, getting the right data to the, to the provider, the PPP, so that the, the plan can be administered, so that the discrimination tests can be done, so that the money can be allocated to the right accounts and so on. The second thing, as you mentioned, is payroll. You got to get that money there pretty shortly after you take it out of the employee's paycheck. It's not the employer's money. It's the employee's money that needs to be deposited into the account. But that's already there. That's just an existing responsibility. Then the, the, the third one is that there are a whole series of disclosures that are required under the law. For example, there's an annual, it's called a 4045 disclosure, as you know, Josh, but an employer, some of the people listening may not know that. That's just an annual thing that has to be given to participants about the, about the investments in the plan and the costs in the plan and so on. But now a lot of this is going to go electronic. The new electronic rules permit a lot of this to be delivered electronically. So I think there'll, there'll need to be some coordination between the pooled employer plan 
and the employer to get email addresses for all of the employees so that they can communicate right. electronically. But I, but I think some of that paperwork stuff is going to go away, not because of PEPs, but but for this whole new electronic disclosure regime. E-de- e-delivery, which was yeah, yeah, another positive, I would say, overall, very, very much a positive thing for plan sponsors. Okay, so I, I think really, really helpful. We'll, we'll see, you know, it, it, with, with a lot of these things, you know, it's so, I, I would consider we're in the first inning of a, you know, a nine-inning baseball game, if you will, just because there's a lot of product development and a lot of things that, that, that need to be created and then implemented and see what the uptake starts to look like. Let's shift gears and talk about just litigation trends for a couple of minutes. We, we continue to see, I think, fee litigation. In fact, it feels like recently, I saw today even a couple of, a couple of articles about fee litigation, which has really been, you know, as much as the industry, I think in some cases likes to fear monger around like selecting bad investments. I think if you look at the past 10 or 15 years, most of the ERISA litigation has been fee focused, right? you know, excessive fees and share classes and revenue sharing and conflicts. And, but there are two areas, which I actually think could be the next frontier, kind of the evolving frontier of litigation. And they're just starting, I think, to come online. I'd love to get your perspective. So the first is just as it relates to cybersecurity. And then the second is as it relates to data privacy. So April, I believe, there was a a complaint that was filed in Illinois against Abbott Laboratories, and it alleged fiduciary breaches of duty for cyber fraud. Basically, a retired participant claims that she had $245,000 stolen from her account by a hacker due to ineffective security measures with the benefits department and the record keeper. And so I'd just love to get kind of your perspective on on that. And what do you think the future holds as it relates to cases like this? And how should plant sponsors specifically be addressing these types of issues and risks as they're trying to make uh, prudent decisions and and kind of fulfill their fiduciary responsibilities? You know, the issue of cybersecurity, it really falls into two categories. One is the one you mentioned, I tend to call that cyber theft because it's somebody trying to access the participant's account and get the money transferred to some bank. And then often it's immediately transferred from that bank uh, to overseas, to Russia, to Europe, to Africa. And there are gangs doing this. I mean, there are international groups doing this. They're constantly trying to get into people's 401k accounts. The, you know, from a, from a lawyer perspective, you know, really ought to look and see what the agreement is with the record keeper. I mean, what, what's the allocation of responsibility between the record keeper and the plan sponsor in the record keeping agreement, if any? I, I am reviewing those agreements now for people and, and we're tightening them up some because of this. And what I'm hearing is that with the CARES Act changes, the extra loans and distributions under the CARES Act, that, that the record keepers, the providers are being, there are more and more calls where people are trying to somehow persuade the people in the record keeper call center to transfer the money out. And, and they're working very hard to fight that off. So what, what can the plan sponsor do other than looking at the agreement, seeing what their responsibility is? I think the best thing they can do is to work with their record keeper to educate their employees on not giving away data, not giving away their password not giving away their login information, not having it out anywhere, not sharing it via email. Just a a huge education campaign. Most record keepers will work with plan sponsors to do that. 
But I'm not talking about a one-time education program. I'm talking continuous, like reminders every month. And I think employers have the same issue with their data. So, yes, that's a big deal. Cyber theft is here. It's worse than ever. It takes a partnership between the employers and the record keepers to do the most effective job of, uh, of combating that. And the participants have to help because if a participant gives away their, their, their information to a family member or to a, uh, somebody who just asked for it that seems credible on the phone, don't give it to anybody, right. period. If you have to contact the record keeper, then get the number from HR and call the record keeper. But don't talk to somebody who says they're, that they're from the record keeper and they're just trying to, and they ask you for, your, for personal information. There's always a back door, a legitimate back door where you don't have to talk to the person on the phone or respond to that email. But that has to be communicated and people have to be educated. So that's cyber theft. The other is what I call cyber security, or you could call it the privacy of data, but it sort of falls in between those two. There, there are three sources of important data on the employer's computer, on the record keeper's computers, and in the transmission from the employer to the record keeper. All of those have to be secure. If you're not, if an employer isn't confident that, that first off, they ought to know that the record keeper is secure. And I can tell you the record keepers I work with are putting a huge amount of effort into being secure. So, it's so, this, so, so, be, what, so what you're talking more about is, so in the first case, right, with, with more of what I would call kind of a, call it a user error, if you will, that, that somebody that, that was not, did not protect their own kind of personally identifiable personal. information, if you will, yeah. themselves. The second yeah. one you're talking about is more around security measures to lock data down itself so that it's not accessible by, by hackers. Like that, that, that Abbott Laboratories case was interesting in that the, the, the woman who brought suit or, or filed the complaint claimed that somebody had called the benefits department of the record keeper on her behalf basically claiming to be her. And then actually the benefits representative, the way that the complaint read, provided some personally identifiable information, something along the lines of, you know, do you still live at this address? So they actually gave out this information, which was validated. And then a third party, and as, as I understand it, a bank account was then changed. And then a few days later, money was transferred. That's different than, you know, a, a, a computer being hacked, if you will. And it seems like that's what you're, you're talking about is in the, where data lives and then through the transmission, it being, you know, call it accessible via some type of hacking attempt. Is that fair? Yeah, those are the, 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 the cyber theft was the one you were talking about with the Abbott example. And this one would be the transmission, the, the okay. holding on transmission. We're working on both of those right now. When I say we, I mean my law firm. We're working on helping clients with both of those right now, but they're both they're both active areas in which lawyers that work in the retirement plan area are working. So th- there's that, and then and then the other source of litigation is the privacy. There's two sets of privacy issues. One are new laws like California's, which have very strong a new very strong privacy law where there can be enormous penalties if it's violated if you gather information from your customers or consumers. The other, the one I'm seeing more of in the litigation right now is where an employer gives information about their participants to their providers, which obviously they need in order to administer the plan. 
But then the providers take that information and use it to sell other stuff to right. the participants. That that has been the source of several of a number of of allegations and a number of complaints by the Schlichter law firm, which is the best known class action 401k law firm and 403b law firm out there. I know uh, in the Van I know in the Vanderbilt University settlement, which was fourteen and a half million dollars, one of the with all these lawsuits, right? There's monetary damages, but then there's non-monetary terms as well. And I know that within that case specifically, the plan fiduciaries agreed to prohibit current and future record keepers from using participant data in that way to really cross-sell unless it was requested by the participant. So that 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 seems like kind of an emerging angle that you're starting to see, you know, plaintiff's attorneys take. Yes, that's very definitely emerging. I mean, John Hopkins was another there are four or five of those now that have been settled where it, they, they, a part of the settlement agreement creates a condition that participants have to opt in to receiving those additional services or recommendations of products. Rather, what I think employers can do, though, and I've done a certain amount of writing on this, where if they engage in a process to have the representative of the record keeper come in and say, what are you using the data for other than to administer our plan? So get it all laid out for the for the plan committee so they understand exactly how that data is being used. And then go through the different uses and say, well, we think this one helps our participants. We're glad to have you use it that way because it seems like a positive. But we still want to know that that you're making recommendations that are in their best interest, and we still want to understand that the conflicts are being clearly explained to our participants. Tell me what you do about that. In other words, I think if properly done by the plan fiduciaries, that Jerry Schlichter's concerns are dealt with through a fiduciary process rather than through a lawsuit. But I think if your record keepers are using that data, you do want to have a, which most are, not all, but most, you do want to have a process in place where the committee reviews it, understands it, and approves of it or disapproves of it. And clearly, doc- my- and clearly document that entire process so that you, just exactly. like in any Always. other decision that you make. Right. Always document it. At, at least the process. I mean, part of the documentation you'll get, because hopefully the record keeper will provide you with some sort of memo or explana- written explanation of what they do. That can be part of your documentation. The, the minutes of that meeting can be part of your documentation. It doesn't have to be like you have to sit down and create a, a separate document. But right. make sure there's evidence and you keep it in your file that you engaged, reviewed, had your advisor with you in the meeting so that the advisor can explain some of the stuff to the committee members. And then you keep that in your files for at least six years. Right. Absolutely. Just like any other decision you would make. Yes. Yes. Okay. Two things I want to touch on, you know, as we, as we wrap up are guidance that was recently provided by the DOL. So the first was around ESG investing. This is something, you know, fairly recent, you know, ESG generally stands for environmental, social, and governance factors. So incorporating those into traditional investment solutions. It's also often described as socially responsible investing or maybe sustainable investing. But there was guidance provided recently by the DOL. It wasn't very uh, favorable and it drew a lot of criticism from the industry. In fact, I I heard the other day that 
during the comment period, which I think ended last week, there were over 1,500 comments around around that guidance. And so, can you talk a little bit about this? What did what did the DOL say as it related to ESG investing? And you know, what do plan sponsors need to be aware of? Either those who are currently taking that approach and incorporating these types of investments in their plans or considering it. Sure. I mean, in, in the interest of full disclosure, we represent some of the mutual fund families that use ESG factors. So, you know, whatever I say, have that in mind. But the the DOL came out and said, if you use the if if the plan committee selects investments that use ESG factors in picking the investments, then the plan committee ha- then they can only do it properly. If the factors are pecuniary, I'll explain pecuniary in a minute. Uh, and even then, they have to document in writing why they selected that particular that particular investment with ESG factors. Which you don't have to document that in writing for any other kind of investment. I mean, in theory, investments can be made with a Ouija board. You wouldn't have to document it, but here. Because it's a, uh, I think that's actually how a lot of invest. I think that's how a lot of advisors actually pick investments. <laughs> yeah, the uh, flip of a coin. What I've learned through this process is that there's the old ESG that you think of many years ago, where investments were made primarily by, you know, union pension plans to try to affect certain environmental or political outcomes. And the DOL is still thinking the old way, but the new way is that many investment, well, many, perhaps most investment managers now consider ESG factors. Let me give you some examples. How could you invest in Tesla without considering environmental factors? I mean, you'd have to at least think about it. Would you, if, if you think that a company is a polluter and that that kind of pollution is going to become more highly regulated imposing significant expenses on that company and reducing its profits. How could you not consider that in selecting investments? And I could go on and on and on with other examples, but uh, the point being that we're a pretty complex world now. And in my view, at least, it's inappropriate for the government to tell the private sector what the private sector should be looking at in terms of of which things can affect the performance or the risk of investments going forward. They don't have the expertise. They're not investment experts. The private sector has investment experts. The government can can just say, look, you have to focus on participant outcomes. You have to look at the potential returns and you have to look at the potential risk and determine that that a prudent investment favors either better return or less risk or a combination of the two. Now, you, the private sector, go decide what what it is you're going to look at. What are the factors that should be considered for that? Because one, we're the government, we don't have the expertise. Two, we're the government, we shouldn't tell the private sector what to do unless we absolutely have to. And number three, we don't have the internal, we don't know. Or number three, this evolves. Factors that were important 20, 30 years ago are less important now, and new factors are more important. So it's it's bottom line, Josh, I just think they're totally off base. I think it's a political agenda. This particular administration favors old line companies. ESG factors favor new line companies. 
solar power, for example, might be uh, a good investment, but you would consider what's going to happen in the future and, that, and then with the environment when picking it. So new, so I just think they're totally off base. They're trying to use regulation to achieve a political objective and, and the thing should be withdrawn. But that's me. So right. <laughs> there you go, Josh. <laughs> Uh, thanks for my well, allowing what, me to have my little rant. There you go. We'll, we'll see if your what your crystal ball is is accurate and and what happens. Well, that's it definitely, not my crystal it, ball. I I think they're going to do it. But, yeah. Put that aside. It, it definitely is interesting when you when you look at you know I think the different you do even over the past two administrations you do you do see a different approach. For instance, the DOL a different approach that that they take. It seems very much that. You know, the current administration is there's been in some ways like a deregulation, if you will, approach. And I don't think that's surprising given some of the, you know, I think early on, I think it was kind of mandated that for every one new rule that was, I think, created, there had to be two that that went away or something along those lines. So it, it definitely is something where you've had a lot of companies who have invested, I think, in ESG and a lot of investment managers. And, you know, getting 1,500 comments during a comment period is is pretty significant if that number is, in fact, the case. It's amazing. Um, That's an amazing number of comments from right. the private sector. Yeah. right. What, what, as, okay, so last topic as we, as we wrap up and then I will let you go. But, you know, the other thing is private equity. And the DOL recently provided an information letter, which um, was requested by two private equity firms, Pantheon and Partners Group. But they inquired about the use of private equity investments in defined contribution plans, like 401k plans. And, you know, the letter I think was viewed as favorable in the sense that, the DOL didn't exclude private equity as an investment alternative, as long as the selection and monitoring of these types of investments followed the prescribed kind of fiduciary standards and practices outlined in ERISA. Um, there's obviously some really major hurdles, I think, that need to be solved, like high fees and lack of transparency and liquidity and valuation and due diligence. But it certainly opens the door, I'm sure, for more investment providers to come up with solutions. What are some of the most important things do you think for fiduciaries to be mindful of? I mean, I've been getting some questions right when that was announced where, you know, around like, hey, what should we do do around this? You know, should we include this? And kind of my perspective was, hey, let's wade slowly into the pool, if you will. There's going to be a lot of time now between how these these hurdles get addressed, how these problems get kind of solved. Hopefully, it's going to take time for product to be built, if you will. But what do you think as it relates to private equity and how should plan sponsors be thinking about, you know, considering these types of investments within their plans? Yeah, uh, again, Josh, my firm represents... You represent everybody. You, you, you represent everybody, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> private equity investments. So, uh, you know, it's consider what I say in that light. But when it came out, I wasn't particularly surprised. As a matter of fact, I was wondering why were they issuing guidance? Because ERISA's investment principles are based on generally accepted investment theories. The most generally accepted investment theory is modern portfolio theory, which suggests you have a wide range of asset classes that have different, you know, risk and return profiles such that you know, the old umbrellas, you know, umbrellas and, and sunglasses. Uh, that you, you've got some investments that are good when it's raining and some that are good when the sun is shining. So a lot of non-highly correlated investments. You know, the guidance was similar to that. I mean, the guidance was consistent with that. So 
as a lawyer who's practiced in this area for decades, it, it, to me, it just seemed like, well, that's pretty obvious. Now, that's the legal analysis. What about the process? What about the practical considerations? The guidance said that it applied to a portfolio arrangement where the, the it was managed by a professional manager. So, so within like an, like an asset allocation approach as opposed to like an individual kind of in the fund lineup or menu, an individual private equity, it would be more of a call it a sleeve within maybe like a target date fund or a managed account? Exactly. Right. A managed account, a target date fund, a balanced fund, uh, a multiple asset class collective trust, you know, just but, but a portfolio arrangement managed by a professional. So that's what it talks about. So you know, now I think it's up to the professional managers to decide whether to include it in their in their portfolios. But it clearly it did not apply to a standalone private equity investment. Right. You know, some of the, the the DOL in there dealt with some of the major issues in the guidance, like, okay, 401k plans are generally daily traded. Uh, how are you going to maintain liquidity? Will you be able to do daily trading? How are you going to value it so you can trade daily? Those are two big issues related uniquely to 401k plans and their daily trading feature. And in talking with some private equity managers, they seem to have that in control. But that would be an obvious question for a plan sponsor to, or a committee to ask if they're considering having a portfolio that includes uh, private equity. And then always, every investment of any kind in any 401k plan anywhere, there's the issue of cost. Yeah. Is this reasonably priced relative to what you're getting? And I think you know, I, I think the major target date fund providers, for example, will take that into account because they want to keep their expense ratios as low as possible in order to compete. But that 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 is an issue. And yeah. I think they're going to need the help of their advisors, like your clients, Josh, I think would need your help because you know, unless you're just a humongous company. You don't have internal private equity, private equity or or hedge fund expertise, so you need to get an outside of your advisor to help you evaluate it. And you know, and then the 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 how long the managers have been doing this, what their track record is, just all the regular stuff. But it's a little more complicated because it's you know they just aren't all the reports and all the information you get on mutual funds, uh, so it's a little harder. But it's not you know I'm I'm not competent to qualify whether it's a good investor a good investment or not that would be the in, in the province of folks like you josh but legally it, it, it can be done and, and and i think we all know the factors to be considered in the selection of any investment for a 401k plan uh, include cost and quality so there you go i believe the end you know what'll be interesting and i think part of this came up and i, I want to move on and, and kind of wrap up but i seem to remember that the intel lawsuit really centered around kind of these custom portfolios that Intel had built and, you know, whether those were prudent and fiduciary breaches, I I seem to remember they might've had private equity in them as well. And that was part of the, part of the, you know, the arguments by plaintiffs. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. I, my memory on that one's a little foggy too. I know they had hedge funds, but I can't remember if they had, private yeah. equity or not. But in any event, you have similar issues, which are, right. they're not publicly traded. They're, they're not, li- they're, they're not they liquid. Be, they're not liquid. You have more, they tend to be higher cost based on the promise of either 
less volatility, greater return, or both. And and that's the kind of stuff that that plan committees would have to evaluate. Right. And if they didn't have the internal skill set to do that, they have to hire, hire an advisor to help them. I mean, the, the process is just the same for everything. It's just that these are more complicated. Right. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And again, this is, I, I would say we're, I'm not even sure we're in the first inning. I think we've, we're probably still in spring training as it relates to, as it relates to private equity. So it'll be interesting to see how things develop. And that actually, as we close, kind of leads me into my last couple of questions. I like to ask these at the end of each, each one of these episodes. So first, how do you think the retirement industry is going to change and evolve over the next five to 10 years and then what would be, Fred, your single best piece of advice to make ERISA fiduciary smarter? The, in terms of how we're going to evolve, I, I, I think up until now, Josh, most of us have thought in terms of retirement plans. But I, I think the perspective has to expand. It has to be retirement, including you know, working, accumulating, and retired distributing. So that there's a, a continuum that starts in the 20s, perhaps, and that goes all the way to a person's death. And we have to start thinking, how do we make that continuum work? One example would be, we talked about the projection of retirement income. We talked about guaranteed benefits. But also, we're seeing more and more employers leaving, letting participants leave the money in the plan and making monthly payments to retirees. So, but, but just a different perspective on it. And I think in terms of future developments, I don't know why we can't have something like super IRAs that are that are retirement plans for retirees, where they instead of providing financial wellness and advice on accumulating and investing to get ready for retirement, they provide advice on everything about retirement, how to have sustainable lifetime income. But they also provide the pooled plan benefits of lower cost shares, and they're set up flexibly to distribute. And so I could see a whole new set of inventions of, of, of services like these super IRAs, as I call them, uh, or, or and products that are specifically designed for retirees. So if people would just implement everything available, like automatic enrollment, automatic deferral increases, QDIAs, I think we've got the accumulation thing pretty well understood and, and we have the tools to make it work. We, the place we're really missing is, is coverage. There's just so many people that aren't covered by a retirement plan yet. We'll have to go to work on that, and PEPs are part of the answer there. State-run IRA plans are part of the answer. But that's in terms of accumulation, that's where the focus, I think, will primarily be. In terms of decumulation or distribution, you know, we're we're just we're golly, the picture is still warming up. You know, we're still in spring training, as you said a minute ago. That hasn't even really started in earnest yet in terms of thinking creatively and developing really nifty products and services. So that's that's what I think is is the future holds for all of us in, in, in the retirement industry. And I think each of us can be a player for the full spectrum, that, that we can help people get enough money and we can help people live on the money in retirement. I, I, I would urge everybody, even plan sponsors, to have a broader look at how to make this work out. Okay. The other question was, what could I do to help plan sponsors understand their fiduciary responsibility? Uh, well, you're, you're, I, would you're, say, you're, I would say your single best piece, since this, this podcast is all about making ERISA fiduciary smarter, what would be your single best piece of advice 
two fiduciaries. Um, there's a line I love, Josh. No one ever called a lawyer to ask how to help their money, their mother invest her money. And my point there being a fiduciary responsibility, a fiduciary relationship is a very odd relationship. The closest we have to that is family relationships, where you actually put somebody else's interest ahead of your own. So if you go to work every day saying, how, what can I do to get the best possible outcome for participants? Then you're really getting to the essence of what a fiduciary relationship is. It, it is literally putting somebody else's interest ahead of, ahead of yours. So that's, that's my single best piece of advice. Think in terms of not the plan as being a corporate responsibility or, or, or not just being part of your overall job, but, but, but at every meeting say, how do we get a better outcome for the participants? How, whether it's lower costs, whether it's better investments, whether it's helping them save more through deferrals, whatever it is, how do we do what's best for the participants? And most of the litigation I see is where people weren't willing to ask that question about every issue, and then they weren't taking the steps necessary to implement. And, and what's best for participants is not what makes them happiest. It's tough love. What's best for participants is what produces the best results in terms of accumulating money for retirement. So don't worry so much about making people happy. Just worry about making things right. They'll, they'll thank you later. That's it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's a, being a fiduciary, it's a thankless job, Josh. Right. Oh. Right. We often, we, we no, often yeah. say it, we often say internally that, you know, we're working for the thank yous we'll never hear in a lot of ways. And I think what you're, I, I love that piece of advice because, and that's one of the things in the fiduciary formula that, you know, I, I try to impress upon readers is that, you know, this idea of being a fiduciary is an incredibly high calling. And it, it takes courage and it takes leadership at the end of the day, you know, as a, as a parent of four kids, you know, a lot of times I have to do things, I have to make decisions for them that they may not like, but I know in the long run, it's going to be what's best for them. And, and I think I love what you, you, what you're saying and kind of that, that idea of, you know, we really need more and more plan sponsors, more fiduciaries, more, more committee members, and quite frankly, the ecosystem, those of us who support them to really step their games up and to take this responsibility more seriously because they have a huge impact on the outcome. I would argue probably the greatest impact on the financial outcome for the people who work for them and their families over time. So great advice as always. Where can people go to connect with you or follow what you're up to? And we'll be sure to put those in the show notes, but you know, how can, how can people stay connected with you? I think the, the best way is my blog. It's Fred Reich, my name is one word, first and last name, as one word, no periods or anything, dot com. So fredreich.com. It's, it's a blog where uh, I've slowed down production during the pandemic a little bit, but usually I post an article every week or two. So it's regularly updated for the issues of the day. That's great. We'll make sure to put those in the show notes so people can, uh, can connect with you. And I'm glad to hear things are going well and you're dealing with this, this, this new kind of COVID-19 world that we live in. But thank you so much for your time today and your insights. And, you know, I, I, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, you, you've probably had maybe the biggest impact on my career over the years in terms of helping me develop technical knowledge and, 
you know, I'm so excited about and, and, and happy to be able to get you some exposure to, to the audience of the Fiduciary You podcast. So thank you so much for your insights and for taking the time, Fred. Josh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Fred Reich from Fager Drinker. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. You have a better understanding about many of the regulatory, legislative, and litigation issues facing the industry today, and it helped make you a smarter ERISA fiduciary. If you'd like more information or you'd like to connect and learn more, please go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk, and unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives, and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. And past performance is not indicative of future performance.